What's up, shipheads? It's Bull here. And I am Dez. And we are excited. We are here to announce the launch of our new feed, the Party Like It's 90s feed. Listen, everyone loves the 90s. It's one of the best decades out there. Just thinking back of that time in your life in the 90s. On this feed, we're going to be tackling all things from that decade. We're going to be taking our favorite show formats and bringing them over to do so. Dad, tell me a little bit about some of the film and TV content we have coming their way. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're going deep into the closet and we're taking out that FUBU jacket and we're putting new batteries into our Tamagotchi. So we're, we're ready to go here, Bull. And you've got all the franchises that you already know and love. You've got movie drafts, you've got Take 5, and you've got these deep dives that we do. And we're going to really just go right towards the 90s. We're looking at year by year, the best movies of the 90s. And we're doing draft style, head to head. Then we're looking at some deep dives. We're talking about all your classics from the 90s. The Big Lebowski, Hocus Pocus, Cool Runnings. There's all kinds of great deep dives we're looking into the 90s for this one here. And then you got your take fives, your top five lists of all the things 90s. So, you know, you're not going to want to miss any of this stuff. So get your Furbies all lined up and enjoy. If that wasn't enough, we're bringing in all the rest of our network in to join us in building out this feed. We're going to be bringing in the Scary Movie Project team to do horror-specific releases of the 90s. We're going to be bringing in the sports team to tackle the dream team drafts of the 90s, make the best super team, one of the best rosters. We'll be tackling all of that. And if that wasn't enough, we're going to be getting jiggy with it and taking our draft format and doing year-by-year music mixtape drafts. Build out your ideal mixtape for any given year. We're going to be going down the whole decade. If you love the 90s, if you were born and you lived through the 90s, if you weren't and you're jealous and you want to go back and see what everyone's going crazy about, this is for all of you. So make sure you subscribe. Lots of fun content coming your way. And we're going to party like it's the 90s. Yep. Hey, there you are. Welcome to Something From Nothing, talks with creatives about creativity. I desperately don't want this to be a pandemic podcast, honest. You've all been soaking in it for the last year and some change, so you really don't need to hear about it some more. And I honestly understand. My problem is, with every interview I do, it's almost impossible to avoid. The podcast involves chatting with creatives, and they, like everyone else, uh, have been hit hard in the last year. Musicians haven't toured, live theater productions are on hold, writers aren't able to go to conferences to talk to readers, cosplayers don't have the comic and pop culture cons to meet fans and attract new ones. So it's hard to dodge the question, how have you made it through the year? I try to keep the pandemic conversations short, but it's tough. Uh, sometimes the best part of their story is how they got creative to overcome the restrictions of the pandemic to find a way to make a living. Many artists have uh, taken their trade online, whether it's through live reading, Zoom conferences, or cosplay via Instagram. Everyone had to put their thinking caps on and figure out what they could do, what they had to do to move ahead. So give me a little space. There's some hope on the horizon that we'll get back together soon, and COVID won't be the first question that springs to my mind. But in the meantime, I hope you're enjoying the tales from all the wonderful people I get to talk to. All of them are excited to talk about their work, their inspirations, and their plans for the future. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll talk wrestling, we'll get weird, and then get bizarro. This is Something From Nothing. I'm Matt Betts.
Welcome back. Our guest is Joe Crow. He's been very kind to my writing and my books over the years. He runs the site revolutionssf.com. He's a co-director of the American Sci-Fi Classics track at the Dragon Con convention each year. And he also moonlights as a wrestling ring announcer. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey! <laughs> nice day for a change here. We haven't, uh, hasn't started pouring on us and uh, the sun has managed to peek out for a little while. How about you? How are you doing? Uh, the weather's good. I just finished mowing the grass, which means the rain is going to start in 10 minutes. <laughs> there you go. It should be your way any second now. All right. Well, hey, you're a, you're a busy man. Uh, from that introduction, you know, I know you've got a, 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 a good list of jobs and activities that you do. And so, so which one really uh, came first for you? Were you involved in Dragon Con first or did you start as a ring announcer first? What? How did this all happen? Where did you start? I started um, as a, I was working at a website uh, okay. back in the year 1999. If you remember back in the olden times. Yeah, Prince sang about that year, I think. Yes, he did. <laughs> that was, uh, and, and back, back then the website thing had just started and somehow people figured out a way to make money. Wow. Briefly. Briefly doing that. <laughs> right. And so I left a very high stress corporate thing and um, went to work for these dudes uh, in my home state of Alabama who were working on a website called Hecklers Online. Okay. And it was, and it was um, on America Online, also little pop up windows that you go to and they just uh, made comedy. Gotcha. Okay. So I was hired to uh, start up a sci-fi website or a mm -hmm. sci-fi edition of, uh, addition to Hecklers Online. We called that Zealot. And I did that for a couple of years until like all websites that started in the year 2000, it went kablooey. <laughs> it was one of those... Hey, welcome to work today. Can you have all your stuff out of the office in 15 minutes? <laughs> yes, yes. And so that was a good time. And um, at that place, at zealot.com, I met a bunch of other semi-professional nerds. And we uh, went to DragonCon, which is a pretty close-by convention for us here in Birmingham, Alabama. DragonCon being in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. I had gone to DragonCon as a fan, you know, a few times. But this time, uh, these times, I got to go as a professional, nice. which is crazy. <laughs> so I got press access and I got to, uh, you know, in, in, interview a, a couple of, uh, you know, celebrity guests and that kind of thing. And then I got to know the fan track um, coordinators and started appearing on panels. So we started, that became an every year thing. Cool. And we would promote Dragon Con, they would promote us. And I would get to go and hang out with um, various and sundry <laughs> gaggles of nerds and be on panel discussions and host things. And that Great. turned into um, revolutionsf.com which we ran for a pretty pretty long time, which was, again, just the text version of... Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, we wrote articles and that kind of thing and did reviews. And 
we did all that for no money. <laughs> so all that big, big tech money was gone by that time. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say 120% of it was gone. Uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was all long gone. Uh, so while we all had day jobs, we did revolution SF on the side. And then once a year we, I would, um, pile up and, uh, go to dragon con and just, um, be, uh, the, uh, king of the nerds for like four days. <laughs> and, uh, that led to me and, uh, Gary Mitchell, who was one of my writers at revolution SF.com. Uh, to becoming co-directors of a little chunk of Dragon Con, a little fan track chunk of the programming called the American Sci-Fi Classics Track. Very cool. And that that's where they put like the old TV stars and the old mm-hmm. movie people like sure. um, Sam Jones from Flash Gordon, those yeah. kind of people. Right, right. Uh, so my first time as, at Dragon, as a Dragon Con attendee, and I, you were kind enough to put me on some panels, but uh, I was, you know, it's exciting to attend. I was looking forward to attending Dragon Con, but I was in no way prepared to attend Dragon Con. I mean, people, <laughs> to, they, everybody told me it was huge, but uh, I was not ready for something really that big and that massive. How, uh, you know, how would you describe this convention to someone new to it? It is enormous. Mm. It is um, unlike mega conventions uh, like San Diego Comic-Con, I'm guessing. It's Mm -hmm. super confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right. Instead of being in one giant convention center or one, you know, stadium, it's across five hotels, at least five. Right. And so, and it's going on um, from Thursday to Monday, and it is organized chaos. Right. But it's totally fan run, and it's um, the the there's there's always more people there than they tell you are there. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and if you hear there's, let's say for example, this is a very low number. Let's let's hear. Um, if somebody says, you know, there's 10 people at DragonCon, uh, it's really 17. <laughs> so scale that up mathematically, mm. and that's where we are at right. DragonCon usually. Well, it, it, like you said, it takes place over five hotels over uh, over like basically five days. It's Labor Day weekend, so you get that extra Monday to have fun. And you have the – it has its own parade, the, the con does. There's also – when I was there, there was a Labor Day parade going on as well just for the city itself. It wasn't just Dragon Con. Uh, it, it, it was like a marathon. You know, you have the runners who want to go there and they and, and they want to do all the things. They want to be all over everything. And then you had the people like me who hung back and just wanted to make it out alive for that last day, you know. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to do so many things, but – you know, to say it's wall to wall people is 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 almost an understatement. You know, it's wall to wall in the in the streets. When you get to the hotels, there's it's uh, people you know doing cosplay, so they're they're stopped and people are taking pictures of them. They're taking pictures of everyone else. So to move through any sort of one floor of the hotel is you know a twenty minute, thirty minute <laughs> endeavor half the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's nice. I'm very spoiled. It's nice mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Right. To have my track room, my little programming track room there in one corner of the convention, and I can always just run back there yeah, and drop my stuff off or, <laughs> you know, get something to drink and sit for a minute. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a madhouse. There are people yeah. who um, 
just take a couple of weeks off and they get there to Dragon Con several days before the programming starts. Sure. And just hang right. out at the Marriott or wherever. Or just st- take their little area, you know, or, or at least, you know, get a, get, a, get a feel for the place before everyone gets there. Heck yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it's a happening. And of course, we, we, we went all virtual with uh, the uh, COVID situation last year. And hopefully, you know, um, either this year or very soon, we get back to where, uh, I mean, this is true for everything. Uh, as you and I were talking before we went on the air, you know, uh, yeah. hopefully we all want to get back and do uh, things in public again. Right. Um, you described your what you guys do as a as a, as a chunk of, of Dragon Con, and I, I would hesitate to call it a tiny chunk because I know tons of work goes into making the schedule for your track. But um, there are dozens of tracks happening at once across those hotels that you mentioned. There's interviews, there's panels with celebrities, there's panels about you know every show you can think of or whatever the theme might be that year. There's movies going on, there's anime, there's cosplay, and it's practically twenty four seven. I mean, there might be unofficial stuff happening after hours or, or unofficial panels. When you guys get together when, uh, with your co-director and anyone else that helps plan this out, what what is your goal for your track each con or each year? Generally, we uh, there are um, a couple of you know big movies, maybe that anniversaries, like say yeah. the twenty fifth anniversary of whatever. Like this year, the this year is the I think the thirtieth anniversary of Terminator Two. Sure, uh, okay, that kind of thing. So we. We'll do a 25th anniversary panel. We'll do a couple of panels for the anniversary focuses. Okay. And what we like to do is because there's, I'm again, I'm very lucky. I've gotten a gaggle of a couple dozen solid fellow geeks uh, <laughs> who love doing panels. So we yeah. can fill up a schedule with just uh, us coming in and hanging out and right. talking about whatever subject. And so we, 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 we like to, I, this is kind of maybe kind of a trite answer and, but I've, I've used it before and I'll use it again. <laughs> <laughs> it, we, we, we like doing panels that we would, would have liked to attend when mm-hmm. we were just fans. Right. And so we've done, you know, game shows, we've done, um, Various various types of silliness, in addition to um, just regular old sitting around talking about Flash Gordon. Well, you did a when I was there. One of the things you uh, let me be, get me got me on there was uh, you did roll a panel where you got a bunch of panelists together and then just rolled a giant die and they had to talk about whatever the die came up, whatever number it corresponded to or whatever. Uh, so you we didn't even know going into it what we were going to talk about, which was a lot of a lot of fun to be on the fly and see who knew about what. You know, that is one of our most fun things. We yeah. got one a a again Dragon Con is a huge. Um, apex location for cosplayers and one of our friends one of our panelists is a cosplayer and he said you know what after we did like the first year of roller panel he said you know what i bet i can make an actual giant die (laughs) and and we said okay you do that and now every year this guy mike dixon has made us customized um 20-sided dice wow with 20 movies or 20 TV shows or whichever that we're talking about for roller panel. That's great. And at the end of, uh, of the panel, we auction it off for whatever charity Dragon Con supports that year. 
Right, right. Yeah, that's terrific. I didn't, I didn't realize that's how the giant dice came about. That was, uh, that was great. Um, so, uh, this all seems, oh, another thing we did, uh, when I was there, you did, um, we did the movie Phantom of the Park with Kiss. <laughs> I, I don't know if that was an anniversary or what, but we got to uh, sit down and enjoy that and uh, provide some commentary as the as the uh, movie quote quote unquote movie uh, rolled along there with a with a really great audience. That was a late panel too. That was like uh, I want to say ten or eleven o'clock at night. We were doing that, and then we had a full house. Might yeah, have been that midnight. was that, that's another one of the fun things we we like to. Uh, we 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 kind of we call it like uh, unofficially we call it a charity lock in, right? <laughs> I, I think we can't t- we can't officially say that we're going to lock the door and you can't leave, but right. what we've done is um, we'll take a let's say a movie that has not achieved critical acclaim perhaps <laughs> yet yes such as Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. Right. And um, then you come in, we watch it, we lock the door. So <laughs> you can't leave until you donate something to the Dragon Con charity. Nice. And that we did that. Uh, the first year we did it was with the Star Wars Holiday Special, oh. the, the classic. <laughs> yeah. And um, we did it with uh, Mac and Me, which <gasps> is horrendous. <laughs> oh, it is. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's That's great. And so it, it's just what uh, we we got we, we like to. I I would not use ever the word serious right. to describe yes. the kind of stuff that we do. Right, right. Um, <laughs> it seems kind of crazy. I mean, you have you do have a lot of fun, but I mean, it seems like uh, a lot of work and a lot. You know, there's a lot going into it. Why why do you keep going back? What keeps you involved in this? Uh, it's the community um, there. I've met so many people doing this kind of thing. And when I was uh, a kiddo, much like yourself and probably mm-hmm. a lot of listeners, uh, we there weren't a lot of outlets like this. Mm. Oh, yeah. there. Uh, a lot of it was you and maybe some kid down your block. And if you liked writing stuff, nobody got to read it. <laughs> Except right. maybe your your pal Dave that you went to school with, you know. Mm-hmm. And getting to broadcast your nerdiness in front of roomfuls of people is excellent. It's <laughs> it, it it's an ego boost, I'm not gonna lie. It's right. um I uh I, I I love just going in and 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 just presenting you just kind of being in front of people you know it's um, yeah. and and just taking my nerdy stuff and the nerdy stuff from other nerds and then just putting it out there yeah. and that that that's that's just one of my favorite things. And and it's you know for me it's it's finding out that you know if you have an obscure panel and suddenly it's it's a packed house and you realize that maybe it was you thought it was obscure but there were you know hundreds of people out there that remember that same thing fondly that you remember um, that's not just a good ego boast that's a, that's a hey all right I've got somebody to connect with some people that I you know didn't even think they knew about you know if somebody comes out talking about Manimal or or whatever you know and they're like oh I love that show it's it's such a great thing to, a conversation starter at the very least but uh, it's great to know that that per, you know those people are out there digging the same things you dig and yeah and I uh 100% exactly. It's not a 
uh, it, it's not a uh, we, we don't we don't spend an hour you know ragging on old stuff and talking right. about how awful it was, and but we also don't do that about new stuff. I generally I love new stuff. I yeah, want yeah. more new stuff. Um, I just like old stuff too. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. A, a lot of a lot of uh, fandom, a lot of organized sci-fi fandom. It's one or the other. Right, right, and um, and I I don't subscribe to uh, to that that notion. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, I don't want to go to a huge conference and, and invest all the time and money in that to uh, to hear people talk about things I don't like or that they don't like. I want to go and celebrate the stuff I do enjoy, um, and to say, hey, you know, sure, the the costumes here or the production value on this might have been a little janky, but this was a fun show and it deserved better or better or, or this movie deserved better than it got. And to have a big group of people sit around and say, you know, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's really nothing, there's really nothing like it. Um, yeah. The, the internet uh, has provided that outlet that a lot of us uh, wanted. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, uh, the American sci-fi classics track is just, um, I, I get to, internet with these people during the year and then right. get to see them in person sure. for a few days at, at DragonCon. Yeah. Um, when you look, uh, look back over these, uh, these shows, any particular uh, events or celebrities or panels that you remember fondly or, or, you know, thought, Hey, that was a good time that went really well. Gosh, we, I was very lucky. Um, uh, one year I uh, got uh, Sam J. Jones from Flash Gordon and his co-star Melody Anderson. Cool. So we did some Fla- uh, some Flash Gordon panels, which were great. You know, it, you get to get up on stage with Flash Gordon, <laughs> and and they they those those two those two in particular, you know, have known each other for decades, and they the 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 those kind of panels are hilariously fun. Yeah. And then I asked Miss Anderson if she would be on a panel by herself uh, because she happened to be on a little TV show called Manimal. She yeah. played the lady cop on Manimal. Nice. And when we were exchanging emails, I said, so would you like to be on a panel where we just talk about Manimal? And she wrote back, really? <laughs> <laughs> that was the one word in her email. That's funny. Really? And I said, yes, ma'am. Uh, you'd be surprised. And that would, that room was packed. That's funny. And she had a ball, uh, <laughs> talking stories about, you know, interacting with the animals. And, um, she said she had no idea that there were, there was such a, like like you were just saying, a, a gaggle of people who were super into this silly show that went right. away after like eight or nine episodes. Absolutely, that's great. That's uh, that's terrific. That, that that's terrific that you got to have her on there. That she got to find that out. You know, that's really cool. So, uh, you, you you talked about you know having this community, being able to stand up and talk to people, and and having this sort of presence. So how? Did that translate into announcing, you know, being a ring announcer for wrestling or being an announcer for wrestling? <laughs> that that was a uh, kind of separate tracks, but uh, <laughs> uh, but but similar things. Yeah. I um, for a lot of my professional career, right now I'm a full time freelancer. I've got right. like five different jobs <laughs> uh, going on all at once. Some once a month. Some 
I need to be doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I, for a a lot of my, like after the websites went kablooey, I ended up at the local newspaper here in Alabama, the Birmingham News. It no longer exists because (laughs) it was in print. And and, uh, so I worked there for a lot of years and I was a copy editor and a proofreader and I got to write occasional articles and a um, in the South, uh, pro wrestling is really, it's big everywhere. Um, but in addition to the federations you see on television, there are lots of smaller independent leagues where rookies um, train themselves or are trained and old timers uh, come down from the big leagues and just do little shows and they do them, you know, at fairgrounds and national guard armories and the local high school gym. Mm -hmm. And really that's where pro wrestling started, you know, decades and decades ago. And so I did a story about that, a local federation in Birmingham and met the people backstage. And when I went to do the interview, uh, the interviews for the article, and the nice lady who ran the Federation said, you know, we need an announcer. And at this time, I was already doing Dragon Con, American sci-fi classic stuff. And I said, you know what? I can do that. <laughs> now, I'd never done that. I, oh, but I've, I've seen it done on television. So I, being given a microphone and asked to climb into a pro wrestling ring <laughs> as a young nerd, right. uh uh, if you had told 12-year-old me that was going to happen, I would have said, how dare you? You're a liar. Uh, and go back to the future, you right. lying. And so I did that at this local federation and met other people from other local federations. And now um, there is a, a a federation called Victory Championship Wrestling okay. uh, about an hour from my house. And they do weekly shows, and I ended up being. Um, I just, I just met met these people and said, "Hey, you know what? I can do this." And they said, "Okay, sight unseen." <laughs> <laughs> and um, I met, you know, one or two of them. It, it's it's a who knows people in these these tiny little mm. independent wrestling microcosms. Sure. And um, because I had done it for the nice lady in Birmingham, these people in Gadsden were like, hey, this guy saw you there. Let's," And that's how I ended up uh, doing that. And uh, at the moment, um, they run shows every week. And I'm there most Saturday nights just wow. doing silly pro wrestling things. <laughs> that's great. Um, you talk about some of the origins of wrestling. I don't know if you've watched the series Young Rock yet. Have yes, you seen that at yes, all? Yes, yes. And that's terrific because, you know, when I was younger, my brother was big into pro wrestling. So we, of course, that was what was on TV. You weren't changing it. So I got to be, uh, you know, somewhat of a of a fan. And this Young Rock show has some terrific actors playing some of the big old WWF or, or whatever league it was at the time, uh, like Andre the Giant. There's a terrific guy playing him and the Samoans and Iron Sheik and all these terrific people. And it centers around... Of course, Young Rock, but uh, also his father, who was a a big wrestler. And one of the episodes, uh, like you said, kind of revolved around him being at a fairgrounds or at a, I don't know, it was a flea market or something. And he was wrestling as the main attraction uh, just to to do something on the side. Um, And that's kind of how, you know, a lot of those things went for a while. Or like you said, if you were on your way up or on your way down, maybe you had to do that. 
it, um, it, it uh, the wrestling in the seventies and eighties is kind of uh, for, for for what you see on Young Rock. It's yeah. that kind of thing still happens right now. Yeah, and in addition to there being like, in fact, just yesterday, just this weekend, as we're taping this, WrestleMania happened a in a football stadium in Florida. Um, right. But but there still continue to be little shows like you see on Young Rock, and yeah. the, the personalities are. I, I've met a couple, you know, guys who are still just hanging out or just sure, sure. showing up and supporting the young the young folks. Um, uh, uh, I and I've met people who've met people. Yeah, I've gotten so many stories from old timers about knowing Andre the Giant. <laughs> Bonkers, two degrees away. I don't know if you've. Uh, I'm gonna completely just thought of this. I'll probably forget everything. But the book "As You Wish" by uh, from Princess Bride, and I can't remember his name right now because I thought too fast. Uh, uh, Wesley. Um, he uh, did uh, uh, the book called "As You Wish," which uh, talked about his time on Princess Bride and everybody he met. And uh, I, I was listening to the audio book of it. Uh, uh, Carrie, I can't think of his first name now. Carrie always. Carrie always. Yes, I thought of his first name. on his last. Carrie always. I'm sorry, um, but he uh, did the audio version of the book himself, and he is just terrific with voices. Um, he does a great impersonation of Andre the Giant, but he has so many stories all the way through this about Andre the Giant and filming this movie with him, and um, so hearing him do this impersonation of Andre the Giant and then telling a great story in, in, in addition to it is worth listening to the audio alone. You know, if you download it, I got mine from the library or whatever, but um, he told the uh, the story of Andre the Giant and just releasing an enormous fart in the middle of a scene that just kind of went on. He said, he said, it, he said it went on for, you know, almost 10 seconds or, or whatever, but it was, it was big. And everyone just kind of stopped because you can't really keep going, you know, after somebody does that in the middle of a take and they waited. And then uh, the director said, uh, Andre, are you okay? And he said, I'm better now, boss. <laughs> and they just went on with it. But hearing him tell the story was just amazing. And, and so I got to imagine uh, if that's a movie set, how, how many stories are out there from people that, you know, hung out and how much he could drink. He would bring just cases of beer for himself to, you know, just to a hotel party or whatever. And he would drink it all and it really wouldn't even affect him. So just some amazing stories about him. And uh, so I'd encourage everybody to, to, to check out As You Wish by Carrie Always um, just to get some more stories in there. Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you're in the ring. Do you ever have you ever been, you know, physically involved in a match? Have you ever sort of really, you know, got a, a wayward punch or kick or somebody thrown at you or anything like that? A couple of times. Yeah. Uh, generally, they, um, and of course, uh, the it, it goes from uh, wrestler to wrestler. Whether you know how prepared, how how much they, you know, they prep beforehand or mm. or tell me beforehand. It's really like a three hour improv show. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so uh, a lot of times I don't know what's going to happen. I'd say most of the time I don't know what's going to happen. And I um, let's see a couple of times. Um, well, OK. All right. Well, I, yes. I To answer your question. Yes. I have several <laughs> times um, a couple of bad guys have kicked me in the head. Ooh, you know, because yeah. they were beating up everybody, and there's a <laughs> uh, there's a a regular bad guy at Victory Championship Wrestling who says my name wrong every time I interview him. 
on purpose. <laughs> yeah. And that's great because I, I am outraged when he does that. And, you know, we, you, you get that, you get the play, the, the back and forth with me and him. And um, <laughs> once we were doing a, sh- a, a, a show and a, um, we were doing a battle royal where, you know, all the guys are in the ring at once and you throw every- each other out. And yeah. one of the evil commentators exist. That's right. the thing. You have the good commentator, the evil commentator who cheers for the bad guys. One of the evil commentators was there at the end of the battle royal and he uh, they had announced, you know, any Victory Championship Wrestling employee can come into this battle royal. So this, <laughs> the, so that's why the evil commentator was in the, in the match. Oh, man. So the evil commentator says he gets down to the end of the match and he goes, I am so excited to be the winner of this battle royal. Now... Joe, Mr. Announcer, you come into the ring and raise my hand and announce oh. me as the winner. Well, he turned his back to me and I lifted him up and threw him out of the ring. <laughs> so now nice. the winner is me. <laughs> uh, did, you get, did you get a belt for that or anything? I or? did not get a belt. However, now I'm the only undefeated ring announcer. <laughs> In all of wrestling, <laughs> that's to great. My knowledge, and I'm yeah. not going to research it. I'm, gonna, right, right. I'm, I'm claiming it. You don't want to invite anybody to come and, and try and take it. Nope. Right. <laughs> nope. And so now, and that that same bad guy commentator is still the commentator at Victory Championship Wrestling. So periodically, mm-hmm. while I'm announcing, I'll just happen to mention, hey, you know, I'm one to know. <laughs> undefeated ring announcer, and he, you know, goes nuts. How dare you? That didn't count. It's the best. <laughs> uh, I saw on your Facebook page you even uh, did a uh, announced a cage match not too too long ago, a few months back. Oh yeah, yeah, that was tremendous. Yeah, this is just a, a wrestling ring conti- entirely surrounded by uh, by like regular you know like fencing, uh, so nobody can get out or nobody else can get in, right? Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. it's usually the uh, culmination of a long feud between good guys and bad guys, and they. Don't want the bad guys to escape. Yep. That's the that's the the the, the storyline of a steel cage match, and mm. um, in the one that I um, got to be. Now, luckily, they let me leave. Dudes flying everywhere. A guy did a backflip off the top of the cage. Um, at one point, the um, uh, the uh, a bad guy smuggled a lemon, and after bruising up somebody squirted lemon juice <laughs> well that's just mean that's it's just just mean ornery and is what that is <laughs> it was tremendous i don't want to ask how he smuggled lemons into the ring but uh nobody knows <laughs> uh and i i you said uh, there's that uh, you really haven't been done do it doing uh, revolutionsf.com but I, I did see an Easter post recently about the top rabbits in science fiction around uh, around Easter which I thought was hilarious and I think that was uh, sort of a bunch of your commentators got together and uh, and gave their top five rabbits or something like that yeah 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 one thing that we've been doing since uh, the pandemic um, generally what we do is uh, you know we we do con programming at the con mm-hmm. and you know we'll do social media throughout the year but when the when the pandemic hit last year, we said, you know what, we're not getting to get out of our homes and see people. So 
we decided to launch a uh, weekly video cast. So it's the same people and lots of different people uh, mm -hmm. that we would have had at DragonCon panels in person. Mm -hmm. And also people who've wanted to be at DragonCon and we've never been able to drag them down there. And right, so right. I've gotten to uh, have a lot of people on our quarantine panels, including yourself, getting time off and uh, or getting down to DragonCon has been difficult. Right. And right. well, this year it's super difficult because nobody was coming. <laughs> so we got a bunch of people and every week now we uh, just decided uh, we did it up until the virtual DragonCon panels last year and then decided we're just not going to stop. Nice. So now we've got like a weekly show, and That's this cool. week to celebrate Easter, we decided to do an hour about bunnies. I was thrilled that somebody included my favorite. Uh, I think his name is Jackson from Star Wars. He was a giant. <laughs> he was a, a humanoid bunny that uh, was in for. Well, I guess he was in for two or three issues, and then he came back for another issue or two here and there. But uh, I remember reading those early ones and going, "Okay, wait a minute." <laughs> I was excited to see more Star Wars content, but. I don't know. Exactly. I love Jackson the Star Wars Rabbit so yep. much. <laughs> just and he because was... he 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 vanished after right. the seventies. Because they had to like you said, they had to put out that Star Wars comic. Marvel yeah. had to crank that thing out. And they couldn't spoil anything that was gonna happen in movies. Yeah. And they, they were not told, you know, what was going right. so they had to just make stuff up on the fly. <laughs> and writer Roy Thomas said, you know what? Let's put a rabbit in it. <laughs> and he was friends with sort of a Luke Skywalker lookalike, uh, uh, incorrectly hunting him, thinking he was Luke Skywalker. And then there was sort of a cyborg. Well, the, the hunter was a cyborg. And then there was a half tank kind of guy. And it was it was a it was an interesting crew that uh, that Jackson the rabbit ended up with. I um I'm always gonna go back to it. I don't I don't <laughs> I, I don't want anybody to say, man, Star Wars used to not be so silly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, contraire! Oh, contraire, uh. sir. <laughs> uh, and they just announced um, uh, maybe a week or two ago that the current line of Star Wars action figures they're gonna do Jackson. I saw the, I don't know if it's the mock-up or if it's the final thing. I saw it on someone that had all the figures or four figures and one of them was Jackson. I thought it was a, a, a April Fool's prank that I had missed somewhere, but I, I guess it's real. If it's real, that place, they've got my money. They've got my <laughs> money. Yeah. I may give that out as gifts, buy one for myself and give one to everybody I know. And sure. Say, yeah. Here's the rabbit from Star Wars that you missed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Joe, thank you. I think we've only scratched the surface of uh, fun stories and stuff we can talk about, but uh, I'm going to let you go. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hopefully we can have you back and find more nerdy stuff to talk about. Oh, heck yeah. And uh, you, of course, uh, we're going to drag you kicking and screaming back onto uh, the American Sci-Fi Classics track as well. All right, man. I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate it. We'll talk Good to you deal. soon. All right. Yep. See you later.
My next guest, Michael Arnson, is a poet, writer, and teacher. He's received uh, four Bram Stoker Awards and an International Horror Guild Award. Uh, he's been teaching full-time as a professor of English in the MFA program and writing popular fiction at Seton Hill University. And uh, he has just resurrected his wildly popular award-winning newsletter, Gorlitz. Mike, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I- yeah, it's yeah, no problem. Uh, I I feel like I'm always talking about people I haven't talked to in a long time, and I'm always talking about the pandemic. But I haven't seen you in quite some time. We uh, probably the last time was at a one of the conferences, the uh, uh, Stoker Cons, probably in in Grand Rapids. I would think. Oh wow! Okay. Because usually we'll we'll see each other at um, well, there's a conference there at Seton Hill. We usually see each other, and uh, just so many other little events all around there that just haven't happened for this last year. Right, right. Well, I mean, we're just far enough from each other that it's not convenient <laughs> to drive, but right. when we can make an effort, we, we do see each other, and that's great. Absolutely. Uh, so, about you know, as a, as a teacher during the pandemic, uh, or as you know, uh, what has what uh, Seton Hill been doing? Has it been mostly distance, or do you have some in person classes? How has that been working there? Yeah, like all the schools, including, you know, elementary schools and things, right. uh, they, they completely went uh, virtual mm-hmm. last year. Uh, and then this semester, the spring, they've uh, had a kind of a split where some faculty are doing completely online over Zoom. Others are doing hybrid situations where, you know, they'll have small groups in the classroom. All all their desks are spread far and wide. Uh, Everyone's policing, masking and everything. And they've been pretty good about it. Right. I don't think it's the best environment for teaching, obviously. I mean, right, right. I would imagine face to face and sort of, you know, right there to, to get those questions and to see the people that might not be getting something or might have a, a, a question suddenly, uh, I, I would think face to face and in the same room is, is going to help. Yeah. I mean, just seeing a sparkle in someone's eye or that aha moment it makes all the difference. But I mean, to keep it on the point of, of your podcast theme um, uh, right away, uh, to me, those kind of um, situations where it seems like it's, it's an adverse situation or, <laughs> you know, it's something that seems like there's an obstacle that makes that, that forces you to be creative to try to make mm-hmm. it uh, good, <laughs> right? And interesting, right. and and part of the job there is to kind of be a uh, you know like a cheerleader and just tell every to remind everyone it's going to be all right and just be yourself that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, and when people relax and uh, you know try to grapple with the difficulties and the limitations that are imposed on them, often that's where the magic happens. So right. uh, you know I'm not too pessimistic about it all, but sure. you know I do believe face to face teaching is the most human and uh, uh, therefore meaningful for people. Well, and, you know, you said even elementary and I've got, you know, my kids are uh, uh, about one's about to turn 14 and the other one is uh, just turned 10. And they were we were given as parents the choice at the beginning of this school year. Hey, do you want to do this hybrid thing where they come in so often and then if they have to, they'll be at home or do you just want to go all online and just not, you know, at the beginning of the school year, not knowing what's going on or where it's going to go. We chose all online so they don't have have to adjust to doing it one way or the other, uh, you know, one way, one week and maybe another way, another week. Um, and I know my, you know, my kids are really missing their friends and would like to be in class. And I think my youngest is pretty bored with the whole thing because he doesn't have that interaction with other kids and other, you know, with their, with the, the teachers or, and things like that. So I think he's ready 
to get back in the classroom, <laughs> to be frank. But um, and my oldest, he's 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 muddling along. He feels the same way, but he he doesn't quite hate the prospect as much as my youngest. So they're doing it. <laughs> All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about you and your career and your 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 start. You were um, uh, you were born or yeah, you were born in Amityville, New York, right? That's right. <laughs> Infamous Amityville. Now, at, at that, how long did you live there? I mean, yeah, I was I was born in Brunswick Hospital, which is in Amityville, and uh, grew up there for the first uh, twelve years of my life. I think hmm. my parents got divorced, and my mom took me with her to Colorado back in like 1980 uh and uh but i i would go back all the time visit my dad and the rest of my family uh the arns inside of the family and yeah it, it, it was uh i mean i love amityville it's it's great <laughs> now, does, does that inf- the fact that you ended up being a horror writer does that uh did that affect you in any way or well that's the thing matt everybody assumes like oh right. you must be you know right. possessed by the demons that possess <laughs> uh you know are you saying you're not no i'm not well, I don't know. <laughs> Does one always know that they're possessed? Right. I, I yeah. Know. There's not. You don't get like a, a stamp on your hand or anything. Right. Though I do always say the devil made me do it. Right. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so you know. So how did you get started writing? At least what what was um, you know I talk about uh, my, my family being big readers and just being natural to read and, and end up telling my own stories. What kind of got you moving into writing and and in horror? Yeah. Well. I mean, part of it maybe was being growing up in Amityville, but <laughs> not for the reasons you might suspect. Right. I remember when the uh, the book, the Amityville Horror, was published, and it was like it had this, you know, slug line on the title. It said, you know, a true story. So it's like really a marketing success as a book. And I paid attention to that as a young person because I worked in a, in a small, it was called a stationery store, but basically it was like a newsstand indoors. Mm-hmm. And I helped them put together the ma- the newspapers and sell those and, you know, stacked up the magazines and whatnot, but also paperback books. And people were coming in in droves to get this book, both locally and visitors who were trying to find, you know, the Amityville Horror House. And I, that really just stuck with me. It really sparked something in me where I saw, wow, you know, these events that are horrifying are actually uh, really uh, fascinating to people and drive them to like drive across the state to visit things. It really made me pay attention to my local space in a way I never had before up until that point. And also growing up with just going, I went to the movies a lot with my father and I tell the story all the time, but he would take me to the horror films and this was like the golden age of the 1970s, okay? Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, things like that uh he would take me to these horror films because my my mother didn't want to go with him oh <laughs> right, right she was afraid of him and right. so he would take me as his kind of crutch uh, <laughs> uh but whenever there was something gory on screen or even nudity he would cover my eyes <laughs> and and i've always theorized looking back on that 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 forced me to think like a writer because I'd have to kind of come up with explanations uh, to account for what happened before he covered my eyes and after. <laughs> right. you know, one second I'd see a woman walking down a staircase, maybe she'd drop her robe, he'd cover my eyes, <laughs> and then <laughs> screams or whatever in the theater, and then he'd lift yeah. his hands and I'd see her laying in a pool of blood at the bottom right. of the stairs. So I'd have to come up with a rationale for that. From point A to point B, you had to use your imagination. So, I mean, that I think is my origin story. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, and I, I had, I've told this story. I don't know if, if you've heard it, but my uh, parents took me to see to a drive-in theater to see Jaws when it came out in uh, what I think it was seventy-five. I think so. I would have been four or five years old. Uh, so after that, after I saw Jaws on the big screen, uh, uh, the the family pool was suddenly uh, a very scary place for me. <laughs> Even though it was only like three and a half feet deep in most places, I still was fairly sure there was a shark somewhere in that three and a half feet. So yeah. Uh, so uh, so when did you start writing your first stories then? Or, or which came first for you, prose or poetry? Oh boy. Wow. Uh, well, quickly, I just want to say Jaws is actually set in Amity Harbor. All right. So yeah. So we've got an Amity Go- theme going here. <laughs> <laughs> and you just triggered another memory for me, which was that uh, I did see Jaws with my father, but uh, I also got the, t- the book afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I put two and two together and realized all these R-rated movies that I couldn't see, I could just buy the book and read them. <laughs> right. so, oh, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I started doing that a lot. And I right. think that's part of horror, too. Its appeal is it's kind of taboo. You're not supposed to be thinking about these things unless you're an adult sure. and stuff. So right. uh, anyway, that got me hooked. But with, with poetry and fiction, I mean, it really was fiction, I think. Um, I, you know, I basically was one of these people that read a lot of Stephen King and then at one point just said, I want to try doing that too uh, but of course i was arrogant and thought wow this is my 90th stephen king novel uh, and i started to see the patterns right uh, and i just said to myself well i can do better than that and of course i couldn't <laughs> well, no i had the I, the I had the exact same uh reaction i read a lot of king and i said this is easy this looks so he makes it look easy so obviously i've written three stories before this i should be able to do exactly what he's doing because eh, how hard can it be you know but i was pretty young i was this was before i went into college I was in the military and I was just there's a lot of downtime when you're out in the field. And so I was reading like horror novels that were, you know, all the rage back then with Stephen King and Clive Barker and whatnot, sure. uh, even Ramsey Campbell. And, you know, I, when I started trying my hand at it, uh, I was just writing in a pad and I would read this, these things that I was writing to my uh, army buddies uh, because they had nothing else to do and they didn't bring books. They weren't big readers, but they, they were laughing at what I was reading. It wasn't that it was a good story, but they were like just laughing. Laughing, you know, deep belly laughs, like they were responding to what I was doing. And to right. me, that was everything. And I was hooked from that point forward. I, I, I knew I would keep writing, even if I didn't want to do it professionally. Uh, and college kind of introduced me to poetry. College made me see that there are different you know, ways that you can uh, leverage creative writing to make it some income, that, that right. it can be a lifestyle, it can be a fulfilling career uh, beyond just teaching English. And so, uh, you know, I, I was really hooked at that point. Uh, yeah, you mentioned, you know, getting that reaction. You know, I've been to a, a lot of your readings where you have actively made audience members squirm. Uh, it, it, and also, you know, aside from that, you always seem to be at least entertaining yourself. You, you, <laughs> you laugh a lot and you break up when you, you get to the gross parts and you get those audience reactions. Sometimes you have a tough time continuing just because you're enjoying that reaction so much. Is that something you really go for or is it just a pleasant side effect? <laughs> That just happens. 
<laughs> um, I think that sometimes it's that whole, I can't believe I just said that, or I can't believe I'm getting right. away with it kind of feeling. I, I'm in public. Which is pretty and... common with horror writing, I think. That, that yeah, something that we're doing is, uh, you know, we're making stuff up and it's magically kind of having an effect. And um, and I, I don't know. I just, I cackle with glee when I'm writing too, when something <laughs> clicks. I'm not doing it the whole time. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> but when it starts like just pouring out of my unconscious and it's like, it's almost like I'm reading what I'm writing as it's coming out of my brain or my fingertips and I just start cackling like, this is awesome. I can't believe it. where'd that come from? You know? right. uh, and that's exactly the kind of feeling I want to instill in my reader. Uh, that, that kind of sense that it's very live. It's not pre-planned too much that it's it's not like there's something impromptu about it like the feeling mm. should be like impromptu comedy that it's kind of happening in the moment and something sparking there that that's where the, the liveliness is uh, and you know the, the laughter I don't know sometimes I'm <laughs> encouraging people in the audience maybe to laugh along with me but I'm just a I'm one of those dark jester kind of people I just laugh you know you know I, I first met you well, at least, oh, I don't want to say it's 20 years ago. It couldn't be that long. It's at least 10 or 15 uh, at a conference here in Columbus called Context. And uh, you and uh, uh, Tim were doing a, uh, a, a workshop at this conference about speculative poetry, which I had no clue was an actual thing, an actual thing of its own until I attended this workshop. Can you give a kind of an explanation of what speculative poetry is? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, it's like, I, you didn't know there's going to be a quiz, did you? <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> I, I, I sent you that whole re reading list and everything, and you didn't study, did you? Well, all right. So speculative poetry, I mean, it's like poetry, right? But it's mm -hmm. also, it belongs in the uh, genres, in other words, of speculative, speculative fiction, which is, you know, science fiction, fantasy, and horror are considered the dominant speculative fiction genres. But... <laughs> You know, they're always thought of as being fiction and poetry just kind of brings poetic forms to the table to say, like, you know, how can I uh, think about, uh, let's say, a Frankenstein creature right. yeah. uh, in a way that doesn't rely on the kind of causality or chronological order of fiction like you could just muse about the scars on uh, Frankenstein creature's neck uh, right. in 20 lines and that's something that you know not right. even Mary Shelley herself would do so right. <laughs> um, right. so I think that's like why it's cool is because it's an alternative approach to something that's very familiar and maybe getting to be too familiar uh, mm -hmm. to, to people. And, uh, or at least if something's getting too familiar to me, I want to come at it from a different angle, like the poetic angle rather than the fiction writer's angle, right. uh, just to, just to see if I can understand it differently. And uh, often I get surprised when I do that. Uh, you know, that's what creativity often does is it produces a, a surprising result. And as I was saying before, you know, it, it, it makes me personally cackle with glee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, after I after I went to this workshop and started, you know, really digging into it, it it was poetry that really was grounded in things that I loved as opposed to poetry that I was kind of used to that 
may have been more flowery. It may have been more, you know, grounded in reality or grounded in, uh, uh, you know, uh, everyday life. You could take something like Dracula or Frankenstein and and use it as a substitute for some of these other images that are, like you said, might become too common or or, or too familiar to people who are reading poetry. And I, I know a lot of people that are sci-fi fans that are like, you know, I never would have read poetry, but I enjoyed your book. Or I never would have read horror, but I love this horror writer's uh, uh, poetry or this uh, poet's uh, work because it, it isn't that sort of – I don't want to say sappy. There's a lot of you know, poetry can be sappy, but it just isn't that same – uh, uh, I don't know, ground or isn't that same uh, setting that's been trodden uh, more frequently by what we might have gotten in school or in high school or whatever. You certainly wouldn't have a, a Frankenstein poetry in, in high school because that just wouldn't be the thing. You know, it wouldn't be uh, proper, I guess. Well, that's what, yeah. I mean, and one of the reasons that, oh boy, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. like H.P. Lovecraft and his circle were writing poetry for uh, the pulp magazines back then right. mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't really called genre or speculative poetry then it was just considered writing and yeah. i mean you know like some of the first works of english literature are, are poems right? oh yeah and, and, and not so fiction genre fiction as we think of it kind of started as short stories and a couple of those gothic romances from from the 1900 or i'm sorry the 1800s but the way we think of it today really was shaped by the bestsellers of the 1970s. Uh, you know, those, those breakout books that, you know, like before we were talking about Stephen King, you mm-hmm. know, Carrie kind of was the uh, motherload book of, of yeah. that whole era. And, you know, and so most people think of genre literature as all novels. Um, anymore when you know 100 years ago they were thinking of short stories and 100 years before that they were thinking poems right yeah poems oh, yeah. Of, of, of fancy or, or fantasy right uh, so like coleridge or somebody like that the romantic poets uh those are in our tradition of speculative poetry but the way people think about it today is either not at all or, <laughs> or yeah. totally grounded in uh science fiction fantasy horror in the popular fiction sense right. selling novels and big blockbuster movies and even television shows like Star Trek. All these have fan bases where people who are true fans will write, you know, love poems <laughs> about Kirk or something like that. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole weird uh, tradition of poetry that's kind of underground. And it really comes down to just the audience. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I leapt all the way back right away to the pulp magazines like Weird Tales or something like that, mm-hmm. because those magazines and fanzines ever since have pretty much used poems just to fill space. Right. You've got that extra page or you've got that extra quarter page or whatever, and they reserve that or they, you know, uh, they have poetry that might have been submitted. And that's going to fill that little spot there because it's not exactly long. Yeah. just as much as a, like an editorial cartoon or you know, right. an advertisement might it's yeah. called filler and mm-hmm. uh, that's really where the you know I started like really paying attention to the filler when I was getting started as a writer I was like that's that's a quick easy way to read the magazine you know the, the first thing you can see when you get a new magazine in the mail the first thing you can read in a quick snippet is a poem that might happen to be on page the bottom of page 25 right. uh you know, whereas a short story requires the investment of like having to sit down with the magazine for a long period of time. Um, you know, and nowadays, like magazines are 
virtually dead except for you know as advertisement vehicles uh, <laughs> and uh it's different i mean it's really literary now and people are into it people who discover this online a lot of them fall in love with poetry like that becomes they love it they, <laughs> yeah and you know you you talked about um you know um some of your early introduction to King, I, I was going to, in college, going to uh, used bookstores and I would buy, you know, K King's short story collections and I would buy uh, other uh, really thick uh, collections of short stories that might have one of King's in it and then the rest were either really old ones or really new ones. And I would <laughs> obsessively go through the table of contents and figure out which were the longest and which were the shortest. And <laughs> that way I could gauge my time. Do I, you know, am I going to go to bed tonight and will I have time to read a two-page story or a one-page poem or, you know, this short story that might be 30, 40, 50 pages? I kind of used that to gauge my time. And, you know, so often the shorter stuff was going to be uh, a speculative poem or something, you know, a uh, uh, really micro uh, fiction or something like that. And uh, those were, I found, just as impactful if they were done right as a 30, 40, 50 page short story. Exactly. Uh, it's or, like the or word you, you, you remember that. Yeah. Writers are really good at uh, boiling things down to their pure essences, or sometimes it's just the idea is very profound, but it doesn't have all the architecture of setting and character. It's just really about the idea or something. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, you brought up Stephen King's collections. I mean, yeah, he had poems of, like, skeleton. And that really legitimated it for me when I was, you know, early on thinking about poetry during college. Yeah. Uh, where I was kind of forced to read the classic poetry yeah. of the British right. Empire or whatever. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, you know, but then at the same time, I'm like buying Stephen King books and seeing these things and going, hmm, you know, there's more there's more to poetry than just what you learn in school or see in Hallmark cards. <laughs> right. Right. Although I think we should come up with a line of Hallmark cards for your stuff. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, but so so in, in saying in saying that, I mean, it's always tough when you you're an author and someone comes up and says, hey, where do you get your ideas? But for you, how do you approach a new piece? What does what does that process look like when you're ready to sit down and write, or do you get the inspiration before you even sit down to write? Yeah. Well, or are I, you possessed I still? To, it's a tough question, of course. Yeah. I try to right. always be writing uh, in some way, thinking about a story if I'm not actively typing into a computer. Uh, and so whenever I am approaching a project, I already have some notes. Uh, you know, it might just be a quick blurb, like story about a cat that's inside out and all the fur is inside of it or something. Right. <laughs> I just made that off. off the oh, cuff. and the, the fur ball is on the outside when they start coughing. That'd be yeah. wonderful. <laughs> oh, this has a lot of potential. There you go. <laughs> We're collaborating already. Yeah. And, and I love just uh, trying out ideas and thinking about them, even taking them to their absurd ends. And that's often what the story, if I'm writing a fiction piece, it's often trying to give some absurd concept kind of the reality test by putting it into, you know, a, a dramatic scene with real people try, in my mind, uh, trying to grapple with this, whatever it might be, monster, or, you know, a uh, moment of the fantastic, a portal, whatever it might be, uh, to see how real human beings would grapple.
Apple. <laughs> yeah, like a reality check for it. Just, realities. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, that's the whole conceit of fantasy is that anything can happen. So uh, as a creative artist, you just kind of have to be receptive to things that most people would say, well, that makes no sense. I wouldn't even, you know, pursue that. So to me, it's almost like there are too many ideas. Uh, and I and it's the really crazy ones that I think are the gold, you know, uh, among all the dross and you know like the more you do it though the more the easier the ideas come to you i will say that like uh you know just this whole thing about the inside out cat that i just came up with 10 seconds ago i really just looked at my cat and said what's the story idea there (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean a lot of it is is you know seeing the world around you and and having that insane idea that crazy thing that you know isn't likely to happen and then just sort of dropping it into that real world and saying okay how is everybody else going to react well Uh, yeah oh that's the key matt how is everyone else going to react it's also like what would everyone else do if they were to try to be creative with this subject and then i do none of those things (laughs) and i think of what would somebody never do that's probably where the good stuff is and that's kind of my process is that i i I, you know if i'm if i see a call for a story in uh an anthology or you know someone contacts me say hey we want to be a part of this i think about how everybody else is like you know the first five or six things everybody else is going to think you know they're they're going to think about this and then they're going to say well this what what's at the bottom of that list what is the very last thing that any of them is going to think and that's the story i'm going to write and whether that gets me into the anthology or gets me weird looks it's it's something that i know is not going to be close to someone else's stuff you know so they're, they're not going to reject it because oh we've already got three stories about the inside out cat you know yeah yeah i know what you're saying and to me, it's, <laughs> it's not just about selling it or getting in to me it's often like that's where the energy is in being able to tell a story no one else can tell. I, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm afraid of, of ever being sounding derivative or somebody thinking I'm boring because they've been there and done that before with the stories I'm telling. I really want to be unique. And I, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I, I, I am as challenging to myself as I think I am to the stories I read, right? If I read mm-hmm. a story and, and three pages in, I feel like I've read it a million times. Right. I won't keep reading and I might even have, a, you know, it's some snarky thoughts about the author. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, they don't deserve money for this. They, they don't deserve my time. They, you know, that right. kind of thing. Well, and that's it. I mean, this far along in the history of fiction and science fiction, so many things and, and horror, you know, so many things have been done, but there's still so much that you can do, whether it's combining two other ideas to make something else just wildly unique or, you know, looking for that, you know, unique twist on, on that no one's going to see coming. Um, you know, there's still those stories out there, although there's so many, you know, that have been told. It's just digging for that and not, and not, not being lazy with the first thing that comes along, you know? Well, you're really good at that in your fiction. I think, oh, like, I think of, I, I don't mean to reduce what you do, but I think you often are attracted to mashing things together. <laughs> oh, I do. I'm not reducing it at all. That's, that's what I like to do. In fact, right now, the book, I'm working on is mashing uh, two or three things together and I'm stuck with the ending because I don't want it to be the ending that people expect or that 
anyone else would have written. You know, I've been kind of obsessing over this for a while, and I've I've written two or three endings. And I thought, well, that's kind of, eh, you know. So I'm kind of stepping back and seeing what I can do to marry all those things together. And it is, I mean, absolutely with with, with poetry and with fiction that I, I I take two things I love and I see what they look like if you put them together, even though they probably don't belong together. Um, and and that goes back to writing for yourself. You know, uh, I don't care if you know if it's going to be a hit with uh, the, the everybody that reads it, but hopefully someone's going to see how much fun it was to take these weird things and and see how they go together. Yeah, I mean, and that's the entertaining part, isn't it? Somehow the artist has been able, a writer has been able to kind of make magic, make us believe in it, and make us think in a way we never thought we would, uh, to believe in an outcome that we wouldn't have expected to happen. It happens. Uh, and good speculative fiction is is often about novelty, right? It's about mm, right. not just the imagination applied to a subject, but something unique and novel, something right. really creative. And, uh, you know, with newer writers, I mean, I'm a teacher full-time, so I, mm. I teach creative writing. So, <laughs> So right. I work with a lot of, let's say, rookie, <laughs> maybe wannabe the next Stephen King. Mm-hmm. The problem is they haven't read a lot. And so yeah. their initial ideas often aren't novel enough. They're not creative enough. Great that they think of things, but other writers have already thought of them. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, when I was reading Stephen King and said I could do this, uh, the first two stories I wrote, well, I'm more than just the first two, but the first two were very derivative of his, of his stuff. And we're... Uh, the writing was very juvenile because, you know, like I said, I've been reading a lot of short stories and I read some of his and, you know, I, I, I read sci-fi and stuff like that, but I hadn't read it uh, with a writer's eye to see plot and to see what he was doing with character and, and you know, uh, foreshadowing and things like that. Mine were just very straightforward stories that uh, didn't have much of a surprise to them, didn't have much of a plot to them. It was uh, just a, a, a f- almost like a free flow story, you know, or almost even like a, a day-to-day travel uh, log or, or diary of this person. There's really not much to it because I hadn't paid attention yet, you know? Yeah. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I can see myself in that. <laughs> I'm reminded, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to just pitch my own stuff or anything, but uh, there, I co-edited a book with Heidi Ruby Miller mm-hmm. uh, called Many Genres, One Craft, uh, right. and they're all essays collected by a series of authors, uh, but it's a, a big anthology of how-to articles, how to write in different genres. And I have an essay in there called Genre Unleashed, mm-hmm. where I talk about how when I decided I really want to be a, a horror writer and I had it kind of had these this wake up call that yes I am being derivative even if I think I'm clever and I really right. need to know what the reader knows I have to kind yeah. of train myself in what my audience is going to expect so that I can break their expectations so yeah. I went to a used bookstore and just I spent a whole afternoon studying those books and buying anything that caught my eye that was in a in the horror genre which is what mm. I write but but books I would never have bought for pleasure. Okay. So like, <laughs> right. I, I right. wasn't really into sword and sorcery, but I sure. found myself buying sword and sorcery books. If they had like demonic looking covers, if the first page had a demon, I would just buy it. And, and, and I had a giant, you know, two bags filled with crappy used books and all right. these subgenres that I didn't like. Yeah. And I made it a study. And then later that summer, I, 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 I realized horror fans, horror readers, 
they also watch a lot of horror movies and maybe yeah. I need to know more about horror movies. So I, you know, I bought a book, I forget which one it was, but it was about horror film. And then I went to the video store, which we had in that day mm. <laughs> right? and rented almost every single title off the horror show, just making mm. a study nightly of the genre so that I knew what I was doing <laughs> and right. I knew oh, what yeah. people out there might know too already and, and, and I a lot that. of us a lot of us write based on like what we love and we yeah. write to that niche audience but if exactly. you're going to write genre fiction proper you have to think about all the subgenres. you have to realize there are people older than you and wiser than you who have read books in that genre quite you know maybe their whole life mm. so you're writing for them you have to right. know your stuff and uh, there is no college in fantasy writing or college <laughs> in horror writing per se. Right. I mean, I teach a graduate program, but there's only so many books you can read in two years. You right. got to make a lifelong kind of scholar, scholarly approach to this stuff too, I, I think. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, my, my second book I was doing, uh, I was trying to mash up uh, urban fantasy with, uh, there's a little sci-fi element, but urban fantasy with crime, uh, sort of, a, I'm a big Elmore Leonard fan, so I wanted to have this sort of uh, urban fantasy Elmore Leonard, I knew very little about urban fantasy, and I did exactly what you were saying, but except I just went to the library, and I took out a bunch of urban fantasy. I read the first chapter of every one of them I took out to see what their tone was, what their point of view was, uh, you know, how they handled description, and, and, and I read a number of them all the way through, but I really wanted to go through and see how they started their stories. Um, as opposed to reading a crime story, maybe that was a little different beginning, and as opposed to sci-fi, which might uh, you know be a little stronger beginning, or it might be uh, you know a more uh, you know sort of in-your-face start or something like that. Just seeing how they handled it, and and then going back and rewriting the first several chapters of my book uh, to not necessarily copy from them, but to see what I could play with and against as far as my book. You know, uh, they're expecting a certain thing. Do I want to play to that since this is part uh, urban? fantasy or do I want to subvert that when they're not expecting it and you know when I whenever I try a new uh, genre I do the, the same thing you know I just want to read whatever I can in there and uh, even if it isn't something I normally would read you know you yeah. know we're kind of like I don't want to use it like a masculine metaphor or something yeah. but uh, we are I always think of writers as really being like car mechanics and when a car mechanic buys a new car mm, <laughs> right they want to they want to adapt the engine they want to add new parts they want to sure. make it their own while at the same time kind of making it a, an outstanding model uh, for what it is like to make right. it the best Ford it might be or something yeah. I mean I don't want to I hate generalizations but most readers who are go coming at a book for pleasure whether they're genre diehard fans or not, yeah. mm. they're not coming at it like a mechanic. They're coming at it like a driver. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's really who we have to work for. And and when you when you describe like reading a sampling a bunch of Elmore Leonard books just to try to see how is he starting these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then practicing it on your own, that's something that a driver would never do. They wouldn't tinker with their own engine to see, well, what happens if I put this kind of carburetor in there? Or something? Right. <laughs> so right. you get what I'm saying? And so yeah, that makes absolutely. you a professional. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> You're a producer nah. rather than a cons 
consumer. I mean, that's really important to be a producer rather than a consumer. I did want to say one other thing, though. I found that reading a lot of these different things, even when you're just sampling them, it fills you with, it's like you hear all these different voices and you're in a conversation and you want to start talking back to people. You want to start participating in the conversation rather than just hearing these voices. You want to speak the voices. And yeah, they are the characters that we create. We, those are the voices we speak through. Uh, sometimes writers say they hear the characters talking in their head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, it's like the more I read, often the more I want to just go right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I probably not good for me, but I read a lot less now that I, I'm writing more um, I, where I wish it was the other way around. I wish I were reading more to get more of those voices, to get more of those ideas for what I'm writing and, and, and to get other people's, you know, where they've been and what they've done. I, I just find myself reading less uh, only because of time constraints for one. And for uh, in some ways, I don't want to get too much of what someone else has written. You know what I mean? If I don't want to read like five books in a row from the same author, because I, I, I worry about adapting their mannerisms as far as you know, their writing or their point of view or something. See, I used to be really, uh, I would read like four books at once. You know, I would have a book that I'm reading. I'd have a nonfiction book that I'm reading. I'd have, you know, something else. And, and I would pick one up, whichever was handy and read it for a while and go off and do something else and then pick the other one up. And it was fun to have all that at once. And now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just time-wise and, and everything else-wise, I just can't do that same amount of reading, that heavy lifting as I'm trying to get other stuff out. You know? Oh, I understand. I know. <laughs> and I think that's true of everyone these days. Yeah. Uh, you know, just modern life is getting more and more time-consuming. Right. And, oh, yeah. And books are competing against every other medium. So, uh, you know, like right. Netflix has the, the market share right now, right? right. People's attention. Yeah. Uh, if someone turns to a book, they want to get away from it all, but they're very selective and they only have so much time. And so we have to respect that as, as writers. We have to kind of write tight, short, well-thought-out things that, that deserve a reader's attention to you know right. take them away from the rest of the world, including well, Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'll go on social media and I'll see some people that say they're working on their debut novel and it's – you know, X number of hundred thousand words so far. And I'll say, you know, as a debut novel, I don't know if you're going to sell, you know, 200,000 words. I, 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 it depends, I guess, but, you know, right. Like you said, writing short and tight and, and just keeping everybody on their, uh, on their toes all the way through, uh, it's probably the best way to, to catch somebody's eye to start with and maybe do the bigger stuff or a series later on down the line. Well, yeah. And a lot of people just want to be writers. They, they aren't as obsessed with the, the writing itself. Right, right, right. Uh, so like they want to be the next George R. R. Martin and they oh. feel like they could write that long. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Whereas editors are not willing to give not, new writers that kind of chance because yeah. the number of printed pages, you know, the length of the book, it, the bigger it is, the more expensive the investment is mm. in a brand new author. And that's a big risk for them. So they want the books to be shorter so that the expense is less. I mean, it's a very crass commercial way right. of thinking about it. But that is uh, it's not just about the reader's time. It's about the publisher's investment and expense. So they often will only you know select titles from brand new authors that are shorter. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, like I said, I miss seeing you, man. It's uh, it's really great talking to you. Uh, Michael Lawrenson, like I said, poet, writer, and teacher. Uh, you can check out his work online, you, and I'll have a link in our show notes. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was uh, inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll talk again.
I'm Drew. I'm Phil. And I'm Kyle. We host the Movie Wars podcast. We pit the most legendary films of all time against one another using our theoretical scorecard, which consists of some classic categories like best cast, as well as off-the-wall categories like which gang would you rather be in from our Goodfellas vs. The Godfather episode, or who would you rather be eaten by the shark or the T-Rex from our Jurassic Park vs. Jaws episode. And our matchups aren't always obvious. We go out of our way to find connective tissues between the films we choose. You won't want to miss randos, which is the result of us doing hours of research and preparation for each show. You're guaranteed to hear facts that you won't even find in the deepest corners of the internet. Check out episodes like There Will Be Blood versus No Country for Old Men and Total Recall versus Minority Report. If you want to hear a hilarious and informative approach to stacking the greatest films of all time against one another, check out Movie Wars.